begin the walk at the Peterloo Massacre Memorial, which is located on Windmill Street, in the square between the Manchester Conference Centre and the Midland Hotel. The postcode is M23DL. Hi, I'm Alicia Russell and I'm a second year student in multimedia journalism at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined by fellow student Rosa, who's just starting third year. Hi Rosa. Hi Alicia. And we also have one of our MMU journalism tutors here, Peter Murray. Hi Pete. Hi Alicia. So, where are we Pete? Well, we're at the Peterloo Massacre Memorial. It's just outside the Manchester Conference Centre. And the memorial marks the day here, right in the city centre, when tens of thousands of people gathered from miles around in August 1819 for what remains one of the biggest pro-democracy demonstrations ever held in this country. At least 14 and possibly up to 18 people were killed when cavalry and militiamen charged into the crowd to disperse the process on the orders of the local authorities. Hundreds more suffered what we today call life-changing injuries. Two journalists were there covering the demonstration and it's only thanks to them that we know what actually happened. This was an unprovoked attack on a peaceful crowd by state authorities who were fearful of working people rising, as, as Shelley put it, rising like lions after slumber to demand better wages and representations for all in Parliament. Now, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but before that, Rosa, why did we choose to start the tour here? What's the link between Peterloo and present-day journalism in Manchester? Why? Well, we think of the Peterloo Massacre as the starting point of a tradition of radical journalism in Manchester and the northwest of England, and so it's an ideal starting point for what's to come over the next half an hour or so, which is our guided audio tour of some of the locations around the city centre which are milestones along that tradition, and it's a timeline which will take us from here right up to our own front door at MMU on Oxford Road. And it won't just be us three you'll hear from. We'll be speaking along the way to journalists and historians who have been cataloguing that 200-year story and who are part of the continuing story right now in 2022. So Pete, Peterloo, how did this become the starting point? Okay, well, the 16th of August 1819 was the trigger for a number of things, creating one of the deepest ever splits in the Tory party. It was a bit like Brexit, actually. It was all about foreign trade. It's also linked to the start of a wider pro-democracy movement known as Chartism, which flourished across Britain for the next 30 years or so into the late 1840s. Now, crucially for our story, the sense of outrage that the massacre created among supporters for social change brought together a group of cotton merchants and mill owners to fund a new weekly newspaper. They said it would cover the pro-democracy movement fairly and would be independent of politicians and the government here or in London. They were led by John Edward Taylor and they called the paper the Manchester Guardian. Yes, and so to hear more about that, we're heading now through Windmore Street and onto Deansgate to the John Ryland Library to meet Cathy Davis. So you actually went on the, like they actually took you around. Yeah, yeah. Here, like so we, in person. In person, yeah. Yeah, because so, I didn't have that. We just oh, listened to yeah. the podcast, but because like, this one two years ago. Yeah, yeah. So we started here at the. From the memorial, walk northwest to the end of Windmill Street, past the square of shops and restaurants till you reach Deansgate. Yeah. Turn right onto Deansgate, cross the road, and then walk northwards for 100 metres or so, passing Hardman Street on your left. The John Rylands Library is the ornate brown sandstone building. You can view the prospectus of the Manchester Guardian, which was circulated in April 1921, a month before the newspaper started publishing. So that's one of the earliest um, documents that's in the archive. 
and the prospectus sort of lays out what the intentions of the newspaper were, who it was aimed at, these sorts of things. Um, it then covers uh, the 19th century, um, but more, most of the material is around Scott's editorship. Um, one, because he was editor for 57 years, um, but also um, that is, uh, there was just a, a more conscious effort to sort of maintain an archive in, during Scott's editorship. It then, the archive in, at the John Rylands Library, the Guardian Archive, covers after Scott's editorship um, into sort of up to sort of the Second World War, um, and then there's not as much material after that. Um, the, the Guardian moved down to London in 1970, it became just The Guardian in 1959, so a lot of the material from that later period now all belongs in the Guardian News and Media Archive in London. Tell us a bit about why, why is that period that you're looking at, what makes it so interesting? Why does it stand out? So um, Scott's editorship in particular uh, stands out because it, you see a political evolution of the newspaper under C.P. Scott. So it transforms from this more sort of Whiggish um, organ of the early 19th century into it sort of shifts to the left under C.P. Scott. Um, and you see it become a more, as C.E. Montague, who was a, a leader writer for The Guardian and Scott's son-in-law, he calls it um, a transition into an organ of advanced liberalism under Scott. So you see like this political evolution during his editorship. Um, you see more uh, sort of uh, advocacy for social change and as well as political change, which is part of The Guardian tradition. Um, the emergence of new liberalism at the turn of the 20th century, um, Scott was very much involved in that. So you see the shift to the left in Guardian politics. Um, there's also this uh, establishment of a Guardian ideology under C.P. Scott. So this is sort of a journalistic and editorial ideology you see emerge which is still rooted in sort of its, its foundings, you know, wanting to um, give fair uh, representation to all opponents, wanting to encourage public discussion, wanting to, uh, you know, report the truth. Um, but under Scott, this becomes very much the um, a, a drive, these driving ideals behind the newspaper, and it sees itself as this sort of, um, it has this civic purpose um, so uh, the, these ideals are sort of truth in news. Uh, there's the famous quote that everyone always says, which is comment is free, but facts are sacred, which is what Scott said in his centenary essay of 1921. Um, as well as that, though, uh, th there is still this commitment to public discussion, using newspapers as a forum where ideas can be discussed and, a, you know, the, the best good can emerge. Um, there's also a big commitment to the educational ideal of the press. So seeing the press as an organ through which you educate the population and again, they can then discuss ideas and uh, the common good can emerge. Um, that was very much a 19th century liberal ideal. Uh, so Scott's very committed to that. He's one of the only editors committed to that by the sort of um, interwar period. Um, uh, and. Also editorial independence as well, so the way The Guardian works, it was by, especially by the end of Scott's editorship, one of the only independently owned newspapers um, that was left, and after his death, it's transferred to the Scott Trust. Um, so that's why I, the, Scott's editorship in particular is interesting to me from the political standpoint, but also an editorial, uh, journalistic ideology sort of standpoint as well. One of the other things that 
maybe is interesting about C.P. Scott in that period is that he was also kind of intervening in politics, you know, maybe personally, but also kind of on behalf of the paper, wasn't he? He, he kind of took a very definite position and he was kind of advising people or telling people yeah. what he thought they should do. Exactly, and you see this especially so from the 1880s. Um, so Scott had already been the editor for, you know, 15 years by this, by the time of the Irish Home Rule Movement, but the Irish Home Rule Movement in the 1880s is when you see his first real assertion as an editor of this is actually the position we're going to take um, and take this more... Um, yeah, assertive stance rather than sort of wishy-washing in the middle, which is what The Guardian did a lot of the time. He says, right, now we're supporting Irish Home Rule and we're supporting Gladstone. Um, the Irish Home Rule movement caused a massive split in the Liberal Party in Britain, but Scott stayed with the, the, the Gladstonians. Um, and that's not, it's not just Ireland he does this with. Um, you see it with um, the Boer War. He was very anti-Boer War. This led to a big decrease in Guardian readership and a, a, a loss um, in terms of financial loss. Um, but nevertheless, he stuck with his anti-Boer war line anyway. So that was at the um, sort of from 1898 to 1902. It's here you see him form relationships with people like David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, who then later on, you know, he's got these connections with and he uses these connections to make assertions in politics later down the line. Um, women's suffrage, another key uh, key cause that Scott advocates for. But again, Scott was a liberal. He wasn't a revolutionary. He didn't agree with women going and blowing up post boxes and things like that. He agreed with constitutional reform, um, using constitutional means to achieve um, progress. Liberalism, or his liberal ideology meant progress, but within moderation. You know, don't get ahead of yourself step by step. Um, and you see this, so even though he very much uh, promotes these causes that are um, progressive, the means by which he argues that we should do this is very much sort of within moderation, you know. Um, and the same applies to uh, the Irish question in the interwar years. He doesn't agree with the violence, it's very anti-violence, but he does agree with increasing po political liberty. So, Cathy Davis has told us something about those first decades of The Guardian, but what came later? Eleanor Shambo is one of our former journalism tutors. As part of this same walking tour podcast this time last year, Ellie spoke to the northern editor of The Guardian, Helen Pitt. We've always maintained some presence in Manchester and it's kind of waxed and waned over the years to the point when I started in 2013, I was the last woman standing. I was a lone wolf prowling the north of England, which was, I always thought, a pretty sorry state of affairs considering that we're one of the very few national newspapers that was founded in this great city. And I think what it took was a new editor of The Guardian who's from the north of England. She's from Ripon in Yorkshire. She's got aunties, her mum, saying, well, why, why is it so London-centric? So one of her first moves when she took over was to, to expand our office um, and, yeah, and, and call it a hub. I mean, it's still very small. There's still only four reporters compared to many hundreds in London. But, you know, it's a start and it's more than most of our rivals. Obviously, The Guardian has a very radical history mm -hmm. from the way it started uh, right through to the 1930s and onwards. If you think about its, its place today in the news landscape, how would you describe it? Well, I think we're, well, the, the main thing that sets us apart is that we are completely editorially independent. We're not owned by a billionaire, and that makes a really big difference. You know, we're owned by a trust, and the trust's only duty is to ensure the long-term future of The Guardian. So we've got no rich bloke telling us what to do. 
um, which and that means that we can we're free to pursue and call um, to hold power to account really and um, you know the day that we're talking is a week after this enormous investigation the Guardian's been doing the Pegasus project which has it really shocked me and that's kind of revealed the extent to which our mobile phones are essentially kind of spying devices that we carry in our pockets and that any kind of uh, nefarious uh, person could uh, tap into and listen to our conversations. So yeah, we, 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 we're all about holding the powerful to account still, 200 years on. Actually, just as a follow-up question, have you had all your phones checked since that investigation? No, we haven't. But I'm going to get a personal phone for the first time in 15 years, to be honest. It really creeped me out, the idea that we're so vulnerable and we're so reliant on our phones. You know, lots of tech investigations I find are a little bit kind of hard for an ordinary person to understand. But this, for all of us, the consequences are massive. And, and if you look at the people they've been targeting, it's... it's it was supposed to be terrorists and the baddies, but actually it's human rights lawyers, it's journalists, and it makes you realise how vulnerable you are and, and how vulnerable your sources are, which is arguably more important. Yes, and with all the incursions at the moment, with the laws being posited around sources and public interest, it is very worrying. Um, we're kind of future-gazing, which is where I'm going to go next, because um, much has changed since Prince print much has changed since print ruled and the guardian has also diversified in its ways to reach audiences i've I've heard you on the today in focus podcast so can you future gaze with us and tell us what you think the next 10 years will look like for the north of england news hub Uh, well i'm always empire building so i hope that it gets bigger and i think that a big advantage of the pandemic is that um it's kind of shown that you don't need to be sitting in an office in london in order to produce fantastic journalism. Um, So I hope that our ranks will be bolstered. Um, I think we'll be doing probably more podcasts, maybe more multimedia stuff. Uh, Will the papers still exist? Maybe, 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 maybe. (laughs) I'm not too sure. Um, But I think, you know, essentially what we do will remain the same. As I've already said, holding power to account and trying to find things out that powerful people would rather were hidden. That's Helen Pitt of The Guardian, and that conversation took place outside the paper's current office, which is at Centurion House, which is directly across this road on Deansgate. We're just going to take a short walk round the corner onto Cross Street, because that's where The Guardian's original office used to be. And that's where we'll find our next interviewee and our next step in the journalism journey. Continue walking north along Deansgate until you reach John Dalton Street. Turn right here and walk east until the junction with Cross Street. Turn left into Cross Street. On the east side of the street opposite the Royal Exchange building, look for a plaque on the wall next to the entrance to Boots. So here we are on Cross Street, yeah, at the plaque on the wall next to the great big Boots store. The plaque reads, The Manchester Guardian, now The Guardian, founded on the 5th of May 1821, had its newspaper offices here between 1841 and 1970. For almost 50 years it was the office of C.P. Scott, the paper's longest serving editor. At the bottom of the plaque there's a quote that reads, Comment is free but facts are sacred, which is a a quote that Kathy Davis referred to earlier in the podcast. Yeah, and so the that gap, the, the paper, remember, was founded in 1821. So from 1821 to 1841, 
the office was just up at the end of the road. There's a mobile phone shop up there, and that's where the first ever office was. And then they moved, whatever it is, 50 metres down the road to this place, and then, then across to Deansgate. And just across the road from here is the Royal Exchange Building, and that's the home of a very new kind of publication, but one that also sees itself as part of the same tradition of journalism in Manchester, The Mill. The Mill's founder and editor is Yoshi Herman. The Mill is entirely based in emails. We're a newsletter, so we send out our stories in emails. It doesn't require you to click on any links or go to any sort of ad-filled websites. We're all based in the email itself. So that's the medium we've chosen um, to send out our stories in. And in a sense, I think the medium is also an important part of what we do because we try to create like a relationship with readers. We address them as millers, um, which is our name for our readers. So email has been an important thing for us because it's created this sort of intimacy with our audience. Um, I don't think that there's no other good way of doing media. Of course, there are lots of great ways. Um, but that's the one we've chosen, and we send out long reads about Greater Manchester. Sometimes it's Oldham, sometimes it's Salford, sometimes it's Rochdale. So we try and cover the whole sort of uh, city region of three million, rather than just the the city of six hundred thousand. Um, when it comes to be print being dead, I mean we're sitting in our office with uh, print newspapers on the wall from the Independent in the nineteen nineties and the MEN in the nineteen eighties and the Manchester Guardian from nineteen fifty two when it was still called. Uh, the Manchester Guardian. So I think that was, um, those decades were sort of the high point of print media. And print media made a huge amount of money and it had huge profits and it had huge budgets. The sad thing now is that print has been in decline for 20 years. And when I said print is dead, I, I think what I s sort of meant was print is no longer the main way of getting journalism to people. And I think for some of these news organizations, it's become a distraction. It's become a, a thing that a lot of intellectual energy goes into, whereas actually what we should just be focusing on is making the stories better and better, and um, have, we can have a relatively small team of people putting the actual newspaper together. I think that's the New York Times model, and I think that should be adopted more in the UK. So you're thinking less about filling column inches and more about content? Yeah, I, th I think the primary unit we should be thinking about is no longer a page lead. Um, it, it should be the story itself, because online it doesn't really matter how long it is. Whereas I noticed when I was writing a story for The Times a couple of years ago, an enormous amount of energy from the editors who I was working with was going into, is this going to go on page one on the splash, or is it going to go on page three? And if it's going to go on page three, we need to cut it by 400 words. And if it's going to go on the splash, we have to run 600 words on page 13. It just seemed like a lot of very intelligent, very talented editors time and energy was going into questions that come have basically to me seem like production questions which is what print makes you do it makes you spend loads of your time as a journalist thinking about production and i actually think what the, one of the nice things about digital is that it means we can spend less time in production and more time just on the stories themselves so i think that, that's a liberating thing we should kind of take advantage of the shift to newsletter is actually quite a recent phenomena can you tell us how that works as a medium to get your message out yeah, I mean, obviously, email's been a huge part of communications for, you know, 15, 20 years now. I think it's only in the past few years that the journalism industry has figured out that it's a really, really good way of reaching people. I think what happened in the past decade is that because online advertising was the main business model for media, 
um, you got a huge race to the bottom on quality, where you got loads and loads of websites, even kind of journalistic organizations that had high standards started pumping out loads of low value content and putting loads of ads all over it. And I think for the reader, for the user, that became um, increasingly annoying, increasingly frustrating. If you go on the MEN now, you're going to find some good journalism, but you're also going to find a lot of uh, stuff about what's on TV, and you're going to find that Rio Ferdinand has tweeted something about Man United needing to assign midfield of what, what you might call very, very low-value stories that take half an hour to write. There's a lot of stories on these kind of websites that are based on one Instagram post. Roy Keane is on a boat with his daughter and he's shared, you know, a, a heartwarming pic and then they quote the replies. Now, I think people are now sick of that or certain types of readers um, who want good journalism are sick of that. And email newsletters allow you to circumvent that whole world of ad-based websites, clickbait, um, annoying pop-ups by saying we are going to give you good quality content in an email. You don't need to leave that the email environment. You don't need to have ads all over it. You can pay a subscription in the case of the mail or in the case of lots of paid newsletters and you can get good quality stuff in your inbox and there's no faffing around with all this other stuff online. You're not going to be tracked. Your data is not going to be harvested. You're not going to have to read loads of Love Island stories in order to read about the thing you want. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I want to read about Love Island, but some people don't. Uh, so I think, I, I think that's why email has become so appealing in the past few years. We're out today walking around the city to, to place the listener in the history of, of journalism in, in Manchester. It's quite extensive. Here we are in the present with you at, at the mill. Would you dare to think about what the mill's place is going to be in Manchester's journalism history? <laughs> I think that's a tough one. I mean, when I started the mill, I thought, how strange that such a great city um, that so many people live in and so many people love, and that has such a big reputation around the world and has such a cultural hold over the sort of national imagination, has one big newspaper which is half the size it was 20 years ago in terms of journalists. And, and that's it, you know. There are some town newspapers that are a shadow of them former selves in Bolton and Bury and Oldham and Rochdale. But there's just very, very, very little local media. So I think where it fits in is a part of a renaissance in city journalism, which great cities need to have. I mean, our economy now is overwhelmingly driven by cities, same, same in, in the global economy. Cities are incredibly important culturally and economically. So to have a great British city that has sort of one newspaper that's been shrinking and that's only funded by ads and, you know, it just seems a shame. So I think we need a sort of resurgence of city journalism. We need lots of different outlets, not just the mill, but lots of different outlets to come along and fill the different gaps that there are. There are huge gaps around culture. There are a few huge gaps around um, opinion and, 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 and around politics. It's just, I, I think I see the mill as slotting in and trying to fill uh, some of these gaps for a certain type of reader who maybe uh, doesn't identify um, with the MEN as their main newspaper. Um, you know, these cities used to have, you know, four or five newspapers. You know, Manchester used to have the turn of the 20th century. I think it had four or five newspapers. So I think I, I don't see, I, I don't see the mill as trying to do anything particularly new. I think we're just trying to go back to some old principles that used to exist in journalism of, of great cities and, and maybe has been lost. 
walk northwards on Cross Street, passing the Arndale Centre on your right. Cross Street becomes Corporation Street. So passing the large metro tram stop, you'll see the print works building in front of you on Withy Grove. The first time was with the walking tour. Yeah. So it was really interesting to just find out about what Printworks is and like what it used to be, yeah. really. So I knew that, but I've actually never, never come here. Yeah, which is yeah. crazy to me. Yeah, I guess uh, just my sort of my first years were filled with like lockdowns and uncertainty, and of not a lot of in-person yeah. lectures. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get to go out too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great place to come, really. Yeah. Like, the floor has changed now, which is interesting. Okay. The flooring used to be a bit more. I don't know. Fancy. Older. Oh, okay. Because okay. it had more of like an old I'd vibe about feeling, it, yeah. yeah. It's still like quite airy though, and the ceilings yeah. are really it's high. It's still very an interesting place to come in. So, thanks to Yoshi for speaking to us and to Ellie for doing the interview. We're on our way next to Piccadilly Gardens, just a couple of hundred yards from here on the other side of the Arndale Centre. But before we go there, we're taking another quick detour back in time. So where are we now, Rosa? We are actually inside the Printworks building in Manchester city centre. It's in a part of the city which has been extensively redeveloped since the IRA bombing near the Arndale in 1996. Before it became the cinema and entertainment venue it is now, this building housed one of the largest newspaper printing complexes in the UK, nicknamed the Fleet Street of the North, because the northern editions of a string of national titles such as the Daily Telegraph, Sunday Times and the Daily Mirror were all printed here. In its heyday, it was the busiest printing press in Europe. And we're actually stood right next to a sign, a little plaque on the wall. Alicia, do you want to read out this plaque for me? Yeah, sure. I do not believe for a moment that decency need be dull. I do not believe for a moment that the reading public want nothing but trash and sensationalism. A newspaper to fulfil its function must inform, entertain and educate. And that quote was by Lord Kingsley the chairman of Allied Newspapers Limited in June 1937. Yeah, and that, that little quote there, inform, entertain and educate, that was also part of the BBC's ethos. And that, the BBC was set up, what, 10 years before that, 10, 15 years before that. And so that's been, you know, kind of the idea of quality, quality journalism that Yoshi was talking about, that's kind of what Lord Kelmsley was after as well, he was at as well. So, Hundreds of thousands of copies of, of the Daily Mirror, the Dispatch, the Manchester Evening Chronicle, lots of other titles were printed here every day of the week. The building was originally opened in the 1870s as the Withy Grove Printing House, operated by the newspaper magnate Edward Hulton. Over the years it changed hands several times, first to allied newspapers and then it was bought up by the disgraced late Mirror Group proprietor Robert Maxwell. He closed the building in 1986 and it lay idle until the redevelopments, Rosa, that you were speaking about in the late 1990s. Yes, this building represents one side of, of the history of newspapers and established print journalism in Manchester. But actually, another part of the story that goes back to the days of the Chartists in the mid-19th century means looking at journalism which is critical of proprietors and which asks searching questions about wealth, the economy, equality and who owns what. Today, another online publication here in Manchester, The Meteor. We're now making our way along Market Street up to Piccadilly Gardens. Pete, that's where you went to meet The Meteor's founder and former editor, Conrad Bauer. Leave the Printworks building and walk back along Corporation Street. Halfway along, on the west side of the street, look out for a red post box. So, 
while we're on the way to Market Street and then on to Piccadilly, um, we should mention this pillar box. We're standing next to a pillar box and there's a little plaque down, down below the, uh, the bit where the collections are and it says this post box remains standing almost undamaged on the 15th of June 1996 when this area was devastated by a bomb. This box was re removed during the rebuilding of the city centre and was returned here to its original site on November the 22nd, 1999. So that's the, the Arndale bombing um, by the IRA and the whole redevelopment of this entire area in the city centre. Now, why have we stopped here? Well, it's because as part of its coverage of the bombing and the police investigation of the Arndale bombing, one MEN journalist, Steve Panter, received documents that said the police knew the identity of the bomber, but essentially that they hadn't acted uh, at that point on the information. Steve Panter was threatened with going to prison for refusing to reveal where he got the information from. Now, protecting confidential sources is a really important ethical principle for all journalists. And so Steve Panter's story is another significant milestone for journalism history in the city. From the post box, continue back along Corporation Street to the junction with Market Street. Turn left here. Opposite you, what's now the Nokia phone shop, used to be number 26 Market Street, the original home of the Manchester Guardian. So we can't guarantee musical accompaniment when people are listening to the podcast, but anyway, there's some buskers on Market Street at the moment, which is, uh, we're heading towards Piccadilly now, for, which is where I met Conrad Bauer from the Meteor. <laughs> Try not to get run over by a tram. <laughs> Walk east along Market Street, past the Metro tram station, until you arrive at Piccadilly Gardens. Two big factors in the formation of the Meteor was uh, the Manchester Mule, which was a previous radical publication, and that's how we got together originally, the Meteor team, was doing a, a community journalism course with the Manchester Mule, and, um, and yeah, yeah, we got together from that, the Mule folded, and eventually we went on to form the Meteor. But, um, um, and the other, big factor was the Salford Star uh, that uh, produced journalism in Salford. They was involved in that first journalism course that we did and I was very sorry to see them uh, close down after 15 years of producing some of the best investigative journalism in the northwest. Again looking at the development issues in Salford and sometimes in Manchester as well. Uh, so there was two big big sort of um, yeah, factors in our setting up of the meeting. So there is a big, long tradition of um, uh, radical journalism and radical thought and radical politics in Manchester, yeah, and we're keen to continue that. Tell us a bit about, you, you mentioned the Meteor team, tell us about the, the journalists, the reporters, the investigators, the researchers that you've got working for you. Uh, at the moment, we've got uh, a team of seven production team members. <clears throat> yeah, so it's a multi-stakeholder cooperative. We have production team members and we have community stroke reader members. And the cooperative model, tell me a little bit about that because it's a, the, a kind of model that's been adopted by a small number of organisations like yourself. Tell us how that works. We believe that the ownership of the media is one of the big problems with the traditional media landscape. I mean, it's dominated by right-wing billionaires owning the big national papers and even local papers now are owned by an increasingly smaller number of large corporations such as Reach PLC which owns Manchester Evening News and a number of other 
uh, papers, and they're all trying to downsize to in, uh, increase sort of product, productivity due to the scale, scale, the size of them. But you're getting sort of homogenized stories being passed around from yeah one paper to another. So it's not really a local paper anymore. So yeah, ownership was one of the major reasons. And we thought we set up a cooperative so the readers could become part owners of our media organisation and have a say in how it's run. So on a, a board of directors, we have uh, half, half of the directors are from the production team and half of the directors are from the community members. So they can have a real say in, in what we report on and we've put out votes before to our membership to decide on what specific themes we will focus on for investigations. Finally, I just wanted to kind of look ahead a little bit. One of the things that you've done very successfully is cooperating with other similar organisations. You know, you, you mentioned homelessness earlier on. You worked on a big national project with the Bureau for Investigative Journalism about homelessness and the number of people dying, um, uh, living, sleeping rough. Is that part of your future, to start to be collaborating with other organisations like the Meteor? Yes, yes, definitely it is. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. That was an excellent um, investigation they did, Dying Homeless, that we took part in. We've produced a couple of stories around that that was looking at homeless deaths on the streets in the UK. And the shocking thing about that was that there was no actual official statistics for homeless deaths on the streets, which you think is crazy, won't you? But that was the case. So that was the first... Uh, time that someone had tried to count them and they did count them and that investigation that we took part in ended up with the Office of National Statistics putting together their own homeless death statistics so that had a real real effect yeah I'm very keen to keep continue uh, collaborations like that we have had another two stories with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism looking into low home care pay in uh, Manchester and Trafford and that's that's uh, combined with data from across the country and uh, we've also had another one looking at um, uh, GPs surgeries in Manchester not offering uh, undocumented immigrants uh, registration. So that allows us to, to, to look at stories with a, with a local focus but also have national impact as well. So very good. Uh, yeah, I'm very sort of pleased with those collaborations we've had with the, the, the Bureau. And we're also a member of the Independent Media Association as well, who are doing very good work uh, trying to promote uh, independent media and trying to find a way to make it sustainable and, uh, and uh, more, more popular. And there's some very good organisations uh, within that group as well. Walk southwards out of Piccadilly Gardens along Portland Street. Turn left into Sackville Street, past the bus station, cross Canal Street, and Sackville Street Gardens is on your left. So from Piccadilly Gardens, we're going to walk a mile or so southwards to the MMU campus on Oxford Road. But there's a couple of short detours we need to make. One takes us back to the middle of last century and the other goes even further back to the middle of the 19th century in Manchester's economic big bang. So first, Rosa, where are we now? So this is Sackville Street Gardens on the edge of the gay village and we're standing next to the Alan Turing Memorial, a persecuted gay man, a mathematician and codebreaker who is widely seen as the father of modern computing. He was based at the University of Manchester in the years after his secret World War work at Bletchley Park. We've come here to remember not a journalist, but someone who's responsible in many ways for the digital world that we live in now. As you're listening to this, you might pause to reflect on just how much has changed in technology and society in less than 50 years since Turing died. 
and you can certainly see more of those changes all around us. Gleaming glass and steel has replaced much of the red brick, the factories, mills, warehouses, finance offices and smog, which would have been familiar to Turing as well as to generations before him. If you leave Sackville Gardens and cross the barely visible Bednock River and then go across Oxford Road, we arrive in the now area given over to student housing, offices and a car park, with very few signs left of what used to be here. The little island district described by Friedrich Engels in his extended work of the reportage on the human cost of industrial expansion in 1840s Manchester, the condition of the working class in England. The cottages are old, dirty and of the smallest sort. The streets uneven, fallen into ruts and in parts without drains or pavement. Masses of refuse, offal and sickening filth lie among standing pools in all directions. The atmosphere is poisoned by the effluvia from these and laden and darkened by the smoke of a dozen tall factory chimneys. A horde of ragged women and children swarm about here as filthy as the swine that thrive upon the garbage heaps and the puddles. Yeah, it's truly grim. No wonder cholera was rife and life was short. Engels was working as a cotton mill manager here at the time, as well as writing and corresponding with Karl Marx as they worked on what became the Communist Manifesto. Yes, and if that was Engels in the 1840s, and it doesn't sound like much has changed nearly 100 years on, by the time the journalist and author George Orwell visited this area as part of his own groundbreaking reportage, The Road to Wigan Pier, and so here's an extract from Orwell's diary. It's the 4th of February, 1938. Frightfully cold. Streets encrusted with mounds of dreadful black stuff, which was really snow, frozen hard and blackened by smoke. Did not want to spend night in streets. Found my way to Poor Quarter, Chester Street, and went to pawn shop and tried to pawn raincoat, but they said they didn't take them any longer. Then it occurred to me my scarf was pawnable and they gave me one and eleven on it went to Common Lodging House, of which there were three close together in Chester Street. There are no pawn shops on Chester Street now, only restaurants and clubs. One shilling and eleven pence. That is less than 20p. It wouldn't get you much around here today, not even a space in the car park. A multi-storey student housing block stands where the single men's hostels of Orwell's time might have been. And here, on the corner of Chester Street and Oxford Road, we're on the western edge of the MMU campus. As a journalism teacher in Manchester and a veteran journalist myself, now having the privilege of helping hand over the baton to a whole new generation of journalists, I'm conscious that in our profession we stand on the shoulders of giants. From James Rowe and John Tyus, the two reporters on the scene of the Peterloo massacre, to the Chartism-era writer and activist Helen McFarlane, through to Orwell and to many others. This podcast has taken you through the history of radical journalism in Manchester. Thank you for walking with us. As you make your way back to Manchester Met Buildings on the other side of All Saints Park, let's come back to the present to give Kathy Davis the last word on the role of The Guardian and public service journalism today. One of the things with The Guardian is that's interesting, I talked about this sort of ideology it has, and in reality when you look closely it can't achieve a lot of these things or some of the, you know, there's occasions where it doesn't quite reach its goals, but it's still very much maintained that this is what we're trying to do. Whereas a lot of the press today doesn't even have that sort of fundamental sort of these moral commitment to being a, a, a public service um, that holds power to account. Um, and that is kind of romanticised in many ways anyway um, by people like C.P. Scott. 
but at least they had this commitment and really did try to achieve these ideals of truth, you know, of offering opportunity for discussion, um, but particularly truth in news. I think we can learn a lot from that today. And I hate to say fake news, but, you know, <laughs> um, I think we can all see how um, sort of the press climate over the last, well, since probably about 2015 has changed. Um, and a genuine commitment from more publications to uphold the kind of ideals that C.P. Scott did, truth in news, public discussion, um, seeing a newspaper as a, a public service um, that seeks to educate and influence for the, a positive good um, is something we could all, I think, we could be learned uh, and taken forward, definitely.